Thanks, guys. If you want to open the book of Proverbs, I'm going to read a bunch of different verses from the first nine chapters. So, 935-ish, 932, it's in those pages. The book of Proverbs, the main wisdom book in the Bible, is about, it's 31 chapters long. The first nine of those chapters aren't listed Proverbs, which is what most of the rest of the book is. Just sayings that you can read and kind of reflect on. And a lot of Christians will read through the book of Proverbs every month, right? There's 31 days, get it? And they'll read like a chapter a day. And it, it's really incredibly transforming. I did it um, from age about 18 to about age 25, and it was incredibly transformative for me. But the first nine chapters, a third of the book isn't Proverbs mainly, but a discourse basically going after a simple heart question and imploring everybody who ever reads it, including us, to see and believe something. And that is simply this, that we would see and seek wisdom and that we would see and flee folly. That is that we would see wisdom for what it is. That our illusions about how it's not cool or how it's not interesting or how it's not going to be fun or how it's not going to bring life, but it's really going to let other people use us and, you know, us always be the sacrificial messianic martyr one and all of that. To lose those misconceptions, to see wisdom for the beauty and truthfulness that it is, and to therefore seek it with everything that we've got as the, as the great seeking of our life. And secondly, to see folly for what it is. That it is our own impending self-inflicted, self-deserved death. That it is the draining of our life. That it is the thing that promises us everything that we want and then gives us nothing in return. It is the thing that we think is going to be fun and sport, but really we are made fun of and made sport of by every parasite and pirate that wants to suck our blood or pillage our life. And it is our opening ourselves wide to that for a little feeling of excitement for a little while. It spends nine chapters just saying, see and seek wisdom. See and flee folly. Live, don't die. Be wise, don't be foolish. Seek righteousness, not wickedness. Seek to grow in virtue, not vice. It is something that has to be pursued actively and willfully. A captivated passion of your heart. And if you'll do that, you will find all the benefits of wisdom. There's tons of passages. Here's a few, right? Proverbs 1.9. Wisdom's teachings will be like a garland to grace your head or a chain to adore your ne- adorn your neck. Look for wisdom as for silver. Search for it as for hidden treasure. Wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. 
before I read the next verse, that's its own point. That is that wisdom actually has its own pleasure in seeing the truth of it. In and of itself, in its own essence, it has its own beauty, and to see it is to enjoy it. But then he also says this, discretion will protect you, and understanding will guard you. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse. It will save you from the adulteress, from the wayward wife with her seductive words. So that is, it helps you see the perverse path and the seductive path for what they are. Twisted in their own ways and enticing in their own ways. 3.3 says, Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Do you, do you see what that's actually categorically saying? He's, say, he's implicitly saying, think of anything you want, anything you desire on any level, whether it's like ice cream or enlightenment, in all ways, in all levels. There's nothing that you desire, nothing that you see as beautiful or valuable, that if you saw the value of wisdom, that there could be any comparison between the two. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is true life to those who embrace her, to those who lay hold of her, will be blessed. Proverbs 4, 5, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or swear from them. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme. See, that's categorical. There's nothing higher than wisdom in human desire. Of an, as an object of human desire, there is nothing that can compare with the worth of wisdom and the deserving of wisdom to be the object of that which we seek. Therefore, get wisdom. That is, see, see, see it as supreme, and therefore seek it with all your heart. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding, esteem her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. She will set a garland of grace on your head, present you with a crown of splendor. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. You see that idea there? The thing that makes you stumble is how far in front of you. Like, like zero, right? So right there, right? You're like, ah, how did that chest of drawers get there? My shin, right? Even the thing that is right in front of you will take you down. The image of the rising dawn is the long view, right? If you've ever, you know, there's some guys reading that thinking, hunting season is coming up. Like there, there is something about watching the sunrise and seeing the, the stars start to fade, and then it get lighter, and a little bit lighter, and then you see that like little crest, the top of the sun, and that bright orange, and it just, it takes a while to unfold but it does. And as you wait for it, it crescendos, it gets bigger, it, it happens, and it lays itself out in front of you, and it, it's not this momentary thing. And what he's saying is, he's saying, you see, the way of wisdom 
actually is this long, slow opening crescendo, like a day being birthed. But wickedness is like walking around in the dark, and the thing that is right in front of you trips you up and breaks your leg. They have very different horizons, and if you want to live, that is the long view, then wisdom is everything. And if you want to walk wherever you want to walk, even if you can't see, then folly is the dish you want to order. But it's bitter after the second bite, right? All nine chapters, a third of the book, focuses on a heart question. It doesn't even lay out all that much wisdom yet. There's a good bit in the first nine chapters. But the point of those nine chapters is to simply say, will you believe God enough to see wisdom for what it is, in its supremacy and in its worth, and to seek it with all of your heart? And will you believe God enough to see folly for what it is, and to flee it with all of your heart? Now, what that means is, is that for a Christian, for somebody who actually trusts God and commits their way to Him, seeking and mastering wisdom is your greatest journey, it is your most valuable object, and it is your most necessary achievement. Which is exactly what this says, but it could very easily lead you to say, okay, wait, 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 wait a second. Where, where's the Jesus in this thing? I mean, I thought, I thought Jesus was supposed to be the great passion of my life and my heart. I thought— I, th- I thought the grace of the gospel, and the, I thought that was, is, are these the same thing? Are these different things? Are two different things supreme? I mean, I don't think you quite understand the usage of the superlative. And they actually are the same thing. Here's why they don't seem like the same thing. The gospel is the heart, and wisdom is the pumping of the heart worked all the way out to the ends of the capillaries. As you read through the book of Proverbs— He talks about everything in normal life. Being married, having kids, how to talk at your spouse, when to start a business, how to, how to know when to work with somebody, when to quit your job, how to, I mean, just all, I mean, everything you can imagine, just all these, like, just normal things in life. How to, how to wield authority, how to submit to authority, how to, and as you, how to treat your animals. There's verses about how to treat animals. And how foolish and short-sighted cruelty is, for example. And in all of that, these, these are like—these are at the ground level. These are not 50,000 feet. This is ground level stuff. And what happens—what's happening is, is the way of God is getting applied to the furthest capillaries. It's the conclusions. It's if you took God's truth and you worked it out to like, what job should I take? Well, that's wisdom. And so they are the same thing. If Jesus is the passion of your heart, if the gospel is the truth that you believe in and follow, right, if you've recognized it for what it is, you've repented of your sins, you've turned to God, you want him to lead you, his truth worked out into normal, everyday life, all the normal things, that's wisdom. That's what wisdom is. It's knowing how God's truth applies to all those things. And so if we don't seek wisdom, what we're doing is, is that we're putting tourniquets on our limbs spiritually. We say we want Jesus to be the beating heart of our life, and yet we do not want his blood flowing to our extremities. We don't want him meddling in all of our motions. And so we'll kill our own extremities to keep the blood from flowing out that far, and from 
taking its implications out that broadly. But that's exactly what we need. And therefore, following Jesus' true discipleship, the spiritual word, the theological word, sanctification, growing and being transformed in faith, is exactly the same as what Proverbs calls seeking, seeing and seeking wisdom, and seeing and fleeing folly. It's just different languages for the exact same spiritual reality. And you can see this in how Proverbs says is the first steps of wisdom. It says, Proverbs in a number of places says that trusting God and believing in God is the beginning of wisdom. And then it says in 3, 5, this is, if you've memorized a verse from Proverbs, it's probably this one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, that is, obey him, and he will make your paths straight. And then people don't like to memorize the corresponding negative verse because we don't like negative things. But the course opposite of that is, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. You see what he's saying? Is he saying, you don't actually have to be that smart. Wisdom is not about philosophical derivation of moral proofs. It is about God self-revealing conclusions about truth that you can believe or not believe. And so if you trust in the Lord and his self-revelation with all your heart, and you then apply those things to your actual life and just do them, that is, you acknowledge him in all your ways, then he actually brings about the, the actual fruit of that in your life. And it is very revealing because you actually watch it happen and you go, oh. So you can have a relationship and, and God can say, don't talk to that person like that. And you learn to control your temper and you learn to do these things. And it doesn't feel good at first because you're not standing up for yourself and you're not doing all the things that you think will get them to behave the way you want them to. You just actually just do what you're supposed to. And then you find out that you not trying to coerce them with your blowing up anger or like mean sayings and stuff actually causes them to start to like you again. And then they want to be with you. And then they would like to do things that please you because they actually don't think you're a horse's behind anymore. And all of a sudden, like the relationship starts going somewhere. And you go, oh, wait. But we never do that kind of thing apart from the fear of the Lord, really. Not consistently. Not the stuff that we can't already see the end of. We have to stop and go, all right, God. Okay, I'll do it. In faith. And then, that is, we believe his gospel, his true promise about something. In the realm of wisdom, the way the world works. It's just the way the world works. It's human nature. It's the way the world works. We go, okay, I'll believe you. And then we—this this part's participatory. We do it, right? We say we believe it. Then we do it, right? And then we watch what happens. And then we go, oh, that's—I did not think that was going to work. And we begin to change our view of reality, and we begin to grow in wisdom, and that leads us back to trusting the Lord, right? And you can track this as, as gospel all the way through Colossians. I'm just going to look at one of these. Paul's talking about proclaiming Jesus. He says, we proclaim Jesus— Admonishing and teaching everyone, what? With all wisdom. 
so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Now, in the Bible, that word perfect doesn't mean what Aristotle meant by perfect, the greatest of all possible ideas. What he, what perfect in the Bible means is whole, complete, and mature. So an apple that is not rotten, that is appetizing and ready to eat, is a perfect apple because it is whole, mature, and complete, and not defective. It doesn't mean it's the greatest of all possible apples you could ever imagine. Which, in Wisconsin, we probably shouldn't get in a discussion about that because it could go all day. But the point is, you see what he's saying? He says, we preach Jesus, and we teach it all the way out to the capillaries. We teach about Jesus transforming the heart, but then we admonish and we teach everybody with, with all the wisdom we know, how it applies to everything in life. Because only by teaching the heart of the gospel worked out all the way to the fingertips of everything in life will we ever have a complete, mature, whole disciple. And that's what we want. We want to present to Jesus everyone perfect in Christ. And you can trace wisdom and how Paul uses wisdom all the way through the book of Colossians. But essentially he has the exact same view as Solomon because they're both following the view of God the Holy Spirit. And they're saying the same thing. See and seek wisdom, see and flee folly. And yet we don't do that. That is not common human experience. It is exceptional for someone. I mean, think about how many deeply wise and godly, disciplined, virtuous people you know. All right? Do you even need to take off your shoes? Because most of us don't. Like, there's just not that many people that you're like, oh, yeah, that—I mean, probably not dozens of names came flooding into your mind. If more than three did, you are blessed. And it's because we tend to function on some kind of—they should be obviously ridiculous misconceptions about folly and wisdom, but they seem compelling to us, especially within our cultural view. So one, one is— we just embrace folly, and that's because we just don't accept what God says it is. We think it's something else. That is, we think it's going to be fun, but we actually become fun for those who devour the foolish. All of folly is wrapped up within the concept of enticement and seduction. That is, it looks great up front. It's actually on the back nine that you get devoured. Now, to, to understand the context of this, and hopefully this will help us, well, hopefully it'll help you the rest of your life, but definitely in this series through Proverbs, there's basically four personal categories in the book of Proverbs for what you and I can be. There is the simple, the foolish, the wise, and the wicked. The simple just means innocent ignorance of youth, unintelligence, or uninformed that is vulnerable and weak, but not blameworthy. We all start out this way. Some of us stay this way at older ages than others. So this would be like, you're young, you just don't really know how the world works. You're actually not that smart, and you don't put together very well how the world works just by living your life. And listen, most of humanity isn't really that intelligent, but the Bible and God is for everybody, no matter what their intelligence level is. It says in Psalm, I think it's Psalm 19, where he says, um, the, the word of God makes the simple wise. And in that case, it kind of means like the uninformed or the unintelligent. That if those people will just listen to what God says in his self-revelation, 
He gives the conclusions. You don't have to actually work out all the philosophical derivations. And somebody who's got like, has an IQ, you know, like just north of a good temperature is, can be wise and actually can live beautifully and actually can experience all the benefits of wisdom, which is peace, joy, safety, wealth. I know people that did not see the person coming into their life for the wolf that they were, but because they obeyed God, that person wasn't able to take advantage of them, and they didn't really know why, but because that person just says, God says this, and I'm doing this, they were—they were, they were this other person was unable to take advantage of them, even though the person had no idea that this person was trying to take advantage of them. The Word of God, God's wisdom, makes the simple person wise. But we're all simple at some level, and so the question is, where do you go from there? Because nobody stays simple for long. Either you become foolish, or you grow in wisdom. That is, foolishness in the Bible is willful ignorance. It's blithe ignorance, not interested in trusting God, knowing the truth, or building disciplined virtue. It is simplicity souring. But wisdom, or becoming the wise, is to giving ourselves, giving ourselves to faithful truth, that is truth that is centered on what God teaches, creating prudence and discernment in decision-making, and courage and discipline in action. And wickedness, or the wicked, is someone who becomes wicked in character, either by intentional choice or by being formed in the blithe ignorance of repeated folly. What I mean is this, people who consistently act wickedly as an action of their character, some of those people have chosen to be wicked. And some of those people were simple. They kind of got enticed into folly. They've been doing folly for a long time. Folly always draws you into a bigger bet, right? So you do something foolish, and you get behind. And so you bet double or nothing to get out of it, because you're foolish. <laughs> and that actually gets you further behind. And so you go, all right, double or nothing again. And you actually get further and further behind. And in order to get to, to, to try a double or nothing, you have to go bigger. And so the folly, the idiot action that you take to try to get even has to be even stupider and more wicked. That is, you're going to steal chips from somebody else. And you're going to suck out their life so that you can be better off. And you'll do it because you're desperate, because you've been foolish, and foolish always gets you in a place where you have to make a bigger bet to get out. And over time, by being foolish and being wicked to try to save yourself, it forms itself into your character, and it forms itself into your character until the only options you think there are are foolishness and wickedness. You've long since stopped thinking about turning to wisdom. And so you could graph human progression like this. We all start simple. If you don't do something, if something doesn't come in and interpose itself, like a good parent, the Holy Spirit, watching your friends destroy their lives, and you go, whoa! If something doesn't interpose itself to take you here, the natural movement is here. Simplicity becomes foolishness. That causes you to bet bigger and bigger, and you end up here. If, if something interposes itself, the Spirit of God, a good parent, a wise friend, a good church, anything that says, wait, 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 seek wisdom. Seek wisdom. 
See and flee foolishness. See and seek wisdom. And you go, oh, yeah, 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 I'll take that. And you actually move in that direction. Then it produces wisdom, faithful truth, and discipline interrupt enticement. That is, it begins to grow in you. Wisdom begins to grow in you this strength so that when the enticement of foolishness comes, you're like, no, I'm not doing that. I know where that goes. Which ends up leading to righteousness, which is reproductive or productive expanding life. Because one of the things that Proverb makes clear is this. Wisdom that leads to real righteousness. I'm not talking about self-righteousness. I'm talking about real righteousness is productive. You can think of it in terms of like babies or something, reproductive, or you can think of it in terms of like building something, productive. But it's always productive or reproductive at life. It makes more life. And so the righteous person walking with God produces a daylight that shines on everybody. They make more. Life expands. There is something that grows inside of them. The righteous are like a plant rather than a predator. The plant grows, and even as it flourishes, birds nest in it, and they come and they eat the little crab apples, and there's a little raccoon living in the trunk, and like a whole ecosystem grows around a big tree, right? Picture a big oak tree. That's different than being like a coyote. A coyote only gets bigger by eating other living things. That's the only way it ever grows. In order for it to expand, something else must contract. It must devour. And this is why foolishness and wickedness isn't just about us. It's about everybody. Because we all want life. And if we give ourselves to foolishness, and if we give ourselves to wickedness, we will still want life, and we will still produce life. But the only way we can get it is by taking it and getting it, and we will become parasites and predators. We will just idiotically just do things that hurt our parents and our friends and our workers and our businesses and anything that we do in life. We'll, we'll be like that, that, a bull in a china shop or a, we will just, and people will hurt all kinds of people around us. We, and then we'll be like, why are my relationships so bad? Why does nobody want to hire me? And why does everybody think that what I do is idiotic? And why does nobody want to trust me with anything? And it's because if you aren't productive, if you don't produce or reproduce life out of a growing life that God creates out of wisdom and righteousness, then you have no choice if you want to live. That is, feel alive and get what you think will make you happy. You have no choice but to be parasitic or to be a plunderer, a pirate, or other P-words that essentially say you suck the life out of people. A vampire. Because of that, everything rests on, in terms of seeing folly, everything rests on seeing it for what it is. That is, seeing it for what it produces in the end, which is death. And remember, death here doesn't just mean physical death. We're all going to physically die. Death, in the context of the wisdom books of the Bible, is the premature, self-inflicted, self-destruction that we create for ourselves. That is what folly leads to, and it's what it always leads to. 
But listen, in Follyville, it is always Mardi Gras because there's always a mask on the skull of Folly. And that's why people fall for it. It's all jewels and big noses and like no shirts. And behind that is a, is a skull, is nothing but death. And so the example that Solomon uses like five times in these nine chapters is of the adulterous woman. Now, before everybody has like a pro-feminist spasm. I, let me just clarify how Paul uses the adulterous woman here. Because in the first chapters of Proverbs, um, both wisdom and foolishness is personified as a female character. And in terms of what it looks like to have a proper relationship in the world, the two personifications of that are the adulterous woman and the wife of your youth. So in both cases, virtue and vice— Wisdom and folly are both personified femininely. If you don't think women are constantly capable of both, you're believing in the wrong kind of feminism and the wrong kind of humanity. And so there is this adulterous wife, this seducer that's brought up a number of times to help us see the nature of folly. And then when he wants to say, give us the other option, he talks about your, your wife is actually the one who should be seducing you and captivating you, and enticing you. Find your enticement in her, not this person. So, for example, in chapter 2, it says, Wisdom will save you from the adulteress, from her seductive words, her house that leads down to death. In five, chapter 5, verse 3 to verse 6, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as gall sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of her life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. There's another pa passage that says the prostitute or the adulterous woman, which he actually uses synonymously, which should be nicely offensive, says that the adulterous woman reduces you to a loaf of bread. Think about that, right? This is, this is the nature of fallacy. We suck life out of each other by each getting what we want, but decre decreasing both in our actions. She gets money, you're just a loaf of bread. That's all you are. And he gets pleasure, right? It is a parasitic relationship. It doesn't produce more life. It just sucks life out of both people and brings death. And then in chapter 7 is—chapter 7 is the longest one, and it's becoming to the end. And so it's, it's Solomon's last real push to say, I want you to see folly exactly for what it is. Beautifully enticing up front and bringing nothing but destruction in the end. Listen, listen to how he goes through—and I think the reason why he does this is because for a lot of people, I think especially who he's aiming at, younger men— but I think all younger people especially, but all people understand the visceral enticement of sensuality. You show me a guy that doesn't understand that, and I will be surprised. <laughs> um, and, it, it also, and it includes this sort of—one um, of the things that people don't realize, the reason it is such a heart issue is because it includes this sort of the altered state of consciousness of, of temptation— you're not thinking clearly because enticement knocks you out of your reasonability. 
That's why there is no, that's why there's virtually no correlation between virtue and intelligence. Listen to this. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them down on the tablets of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And to insight, you are my relative. They will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. So he's like, write it on your—write a note yourself on your finger. Keep it in front of your eyes so you can't see what's on the other side of it. Write it on the tablets of your heart. Do everything you need so that you will remember it at the critical moment when enticement is taking you. Because enticement is non-intellectual experience. Enticement and temptation is a visceral experience. And it saps the strength out of your will, and it confuses and clouds your reason, and it draws in your passion. And if you are not incredibly prepared for that, you do not have a chance to see it for what it is. Listen, one of the things that that naturally happens is people will go to like Bible study or small group and they will discuss dealing with temptation as though sitting in an intergenerational group in somebody's living room and sipping punch is the level of temptation they need to be able to resist. No! No! This is why we train spies on being tortured and being drugged and being drunk and all, so that they can be good spies when those things are happening to them. You, you have to prepare yourself in wisdom and in godliness and ability to escape enticement and to see seduction for what it is at the worst possible temptation you could possibly ever experience. Are you doing that? Is that what your training in godliness is aimed at? Are you thinking right now for the man or woman you are going to fall in love with at work next year? Because you're— the team's got restructured, and you're just spending more time with her than with your wife, or him than with your husband, and you're just kind of there, and like, you're working really hard together on something, and you start having these feelings, and like, are you ready for that? Because you better be training right now, because when that happens, you're already drunk. And you can't prep when you're drunk on temptation and enticement. You have to already be so ready in will and in clarity and in character and in objectivity that when that enticement comes and you start getting foggy-headed, in all that fog, you can, you can say, uh-uh, that's not how this rolls. That is totally different than drinking heated cider and being like, yeah, adultery's bad. The Bible says adultery's bad. We shouldn't do that. What in God's name is that going to accomplish? Nothing. You need to be like, oh, he talks about like that, like we're all going to be tempted in insane ways towards that. How, how do I need to prepare myself for that? Right? Listen to how he, he says, and so he, he talks about seeing this. At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice and saw among the simple— I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men a youth who had no sense. That is, he should have been smarter than this, even in his youth. You don't have to wait to be not simple. He was going down the street near the corner, walking along in the direction of her house as, as the dark of night was setting in. Okay, so he's, he's out at night. He apparently does not know who he's approaching, so he has not done proper scouting. 
right? And he's going at just the time she's prowling, which means he either wants to be enticed or he is not at all looking out ahead at what's coming up the road. About just as bad. Then out came the woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant, her feet never staying at home. Now in the square streets, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. That is, folly and sin are everywhere. Of all kinds, not just sensuality. She took hold of him and kissed him. All right, do you see, do you see the play here? He's already not thinking straight. Some woman just comes up and grabs him and kisses him. Like, can you imagine? Like, I mean, just think of it. That's what sin is like. You're, like, you're walking along, you probably should know better than being there, and then all of a sudden, it is, it is all over you with enticement. You're just like, who am I kissing? What's happening? It is fast. I've never said that, by the way. Okay, and then it gets worse. Because it says, she speaks with brazen face. Listen to what she says. Today I fulfilled my vows. Get it? <laughs> no, listen. I have food from my fellowship offerings at home. So what she's saying is, I went to church today. I'm a good person. You're a good person. I'm a good person. I went to church today, and I, I made the right offerings to the Lord. See, I have, because fellowship offerings, offerings, you were allowed to take some of, some of the meat of the offering home with you, and you would eat it with other people as— she, in her human fellowship, right? And so what she's saying is, is, I went to church, and I did all the good God stuff, and you and I are good people, and God probably wants us to be happy, and there's nothing wrong with this, and don't you see? Right? So I came out to meet you, and looked for you, and I found you, as though this individual guy, that it's him matters, that it's Fred and not Bob, right? It's, it's always like that. You're special. You're so special. I wouldn't have wanted to suck the blood of anybody else. <laughs> right? There's always flattery. And if you can't smell flattery when you're getting it, you are in danger. It is so fundamental a human skill to know when you're being flattered. Or to know when you're hearing somebody flatter somebody else, to know that you can't trust them. And then I'm going to make all your dreams come true. I've, I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink deeply of love till morning. Let us enjoy ourselves with love. Right? I'm going to, I'm going to make all your fantasies come true. It's going to be so amazing. It's going to be all night. It's going to be—I mean, it's going to have long. We're going to lose ourselves in this as though it's not going to last five minutes and 11 seconds, you know? That's scientific. That is the average sexual experience in America. Five minutes and 11 seconds. <laughs> and then she says, we're not going to get caught. We're, there's never going to be any price to pay for this. My husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a purse full with money, and he won't be home till the full moon. Right? We're good people. We're good people. Oh, it could only be you. Right? I'm going to make all your dreams come true. It's going to last a long time. You know, it's not, you know this is—it's long, it's long term. Long enough, and we're not going to get caught. There's going to be no price to be paid for this. That's a pretty good play, right? That girl knows what she's doing, right? And for the average guy, she'd have to say the first line, right? 
But this is what he says. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. And then this is a really interesting. All at once, he followed her. Sin is like that, right? You're resisting a little bit. You're kind of, you're pondering it. And then there's this, right? All at once, he followed her. And then he says this. This is how he describes it. Like an ox going to slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces its liver. Okay, so if you're not a hunting fanatic, this is a very specific phrase. Because shooting, getting shot or shooting something in the liver is like this great way to die slowly, right? If you get shot in the liver, you're going to die. It's just going to be slow. You get shot in the heart and lungs, you're going to die. It's just going to happen relatively quick, mercifully, sort of, right? Or in the head, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you get shot, you know, in the leg, you might live. It's just going to hurt a lot. You get shot in the liver, you're going to slowly bleed internally until you die. And it's going to be awful. And you see what he's saying is, saying, think about the fallout of adultery, right? The playtime is pretty short. And then you get to go to divorce court, and your spouse hates you, and then your kids hate you, and then and everything you wanted for your life comes apart slowly, painfully, over a long period of time, and you just have, like, it's like getting shot in the liver with an arrow. It's horrible. And he, when he, as you watch that young man go into that house, that's what he saw. Because that's what wisdom always sees with sin and folly. It always looks to the end. It always looks to what this really is. And if, if you can see what things are, if you can see its spiritual significance, how it pleases or displeases the Lord, if you can see its moral significance, how it affects everyone around you, and how it de will deform or transform you negatively. And if you see its end, that is, it's going to bring about your destruction. Then you will go, wait a second. There's this funny story John Orberg told one time. He's a pastor. And he said he was talking to this younger guy. And, he was, and the guy had like basically met this girl, and within less than a week, he'd slept with her. And he's kind of like, oh, I like— And he's like, okay, you're an idiot. And the, the guy's like, well, like, I just—I couldn't stop myself. There's like nothing I could do. Like, I was just so like into it. And like, oh. And he's like, seriously? <laughs> the guy's like, yeah. He's like, let me, let me ask you a question. If you got into an apartment, and you were kissing and stuff, whatever, and, and, and you saw her ID, like, on her counter, and you realized that she was your boss's daughter, do you think that would have affected anything? And he goes, oh, I totally would have stopped. <laughs> and he's like, right. There were certain truths that if you actually believed them, they would have sobered you up when you needed them. The problem is, you don't actually believe any truths deeply enough to sober you up when you need them. And you certainly haven't understood them deeply enough so that they filled out a wider circle, and you certainly haven't built them into your character with habit so that habit was with you rather than against you.
The second thing, and I'll go through this faster, is, is that we resist wisdom partly because we see prudence and righteousness as unattractive. Because when we hear prudence, we think prudish. And when we hear righteousness, we hear self-righteous. And because when we hear prudence, we think prudish. And because when we hear righteousness, we think self-righteous. Because that's how self-righteousness people, self-righteous people pass themselves off. We see the call to a life of wisdom, a life of prudence and righteousness, as kind of unattractive. Right? But prudence is actually one of the great cardinal virtues. For a couple thousand years at least, probably more like 3,000, prudence was seen as the queen of all the virtues. In fact, um, it wasn't until fairly recently that we started thinking of prudence as prudishness, that is an unwillingness to take a risk, aversion to pleasure, and paralyzed by cautiousness, right? We think of a prudent as somebody who won't, who won't do anything because they're too scared. They, they can't get the benefit because they're too scared of what might happen. That is, they don't want to take the risks that life requires. And so you get people saying, well, it's better to like live and have some regrets, you know, than like being some kind of like prude that like never tries anything. At least I'm living authentically. Yeah, I make some mistakes, but like— at least I'm living authentically, right? And, and listen, I'm not saying that people don't say that with uh, the utmost sincerity. But listen, the righteous take tons of risks. They're just different ones. I mean, can you think of anything more risky than getting married? It's terrifying. Right? Or having children. Or starting a business. Right? To supply for the needs of others, employ other people, and build wealth. It's terrifying. There's tons of people just waiting to take advantage of you. Waiting for you to produce something so they can steal it. They can litigate you for something, sue you for something, steal your merch. I mean, there's tons of productive things that require immense risk— <clears throat> that only people with way more courage than the courage to hook up requires. There's nothing that takes more courage in human life than becoming a soldier or getting married or passing on life to children or committing yourself to people in church that are probably weird and that you're never going to really like, but Jesus has bound you together to them as your brothers and sisters. When you look at these things from a certain perspective, they are full of risk because you are trading in your life. You are giving your life so that in those things, life would grow and expand. But you still are risking yourself. And you see, prudence is not an unwillingness to risk. It is right thinking to understand the proper end and to be rightly prepared to ride with courage into whatever must be done to execute it well. So prudence says, I love this woman. I think that the right thing is for me to marry her, right? And courage says, you sure? And prudence goes, yeah. And so courage goes, all right, let's ride. And prudence goes, whoa, tiger. If we don't enter into this with these nine, if we don't do these nine things with discipline, 
then it's, then we're likely not going to succeed. So we're going to enter into this, and we're going to ask her to marry, but we are going to do these nine things so that we execute this well, with bravery and with wisdom, and give ourselves the greatest chance for success to broaden and give life more broadly. That is prudence and courage built on wisdom, released in faith, functioning in life, full of risk. And it is not the paltry, parasitic risk of pseudo-authenticity that can only be thought authentic because it bears all the premises of folly. And so it's only when we release our perception that prudence is prudery and that righteousness is self-righteousness and we believe in a thing called righteousness that is a real thing. And we believe in a thing called prudence that is wisdom, embodied, knowing what to do and having the courage to do it. That that is a thing that is and it is full of beauty and nobility and it creates and expands life that we actually have any potential saying, I want to be wise. I can see wisdom for the beauty that it bears. I can see that it is the great pursuit of my life. I can, I can see that this is how the spiritual blood of Jesus is meant to pulse through my system in all the areas of my life. And I can see now that in Christ and in trusting God, I am meant to be wise. I am meant to be prudent and I am meant to be righteous. And that does not have to mean weak. And it does not have to mean unable to take care of myself, and it does not have to mean dorky, and it doesn't have to mean silly, and it doesn't have to mean incapable, but it actually can mean something strong. Because, you know, it's like the old, you remember like the old, I don't know if you've watched old westerns, but here's like the story of the old westerns, right? Here's the story of the old western. There's a town full of humans who all have guns, okay? And three bad guys ride into town, right? And they like shoot one normal guy. Who messes with, looks at him wrong, goes, what are you doing? Right? And the guy just falls dead, right? And then everybody's terrified. And they're like, what are you doing? And then they're like, hey, there's this bad guy that's become kind of a good guy who's like a lawman now. Right? He's like the black hat turned white hat. Marshall, let's pay a bunch of money for him to come and fight these guys. And the marshal comes and he's one against three. He like shoots, what? Okay, those good people weren't good people. They might be law-abiding. They might be good in certain ways. But they weren't prudent and courageous, and there is no biblical such thing as righteous without those things. If those people had prudence, they would have been shooting their rifles out in the field for years, working on their marksmanship. They would have already had a system of posse fighting before these three guys ever came into town. They would have had a far shrewder plan of how to take these guys out than they ever had it coming in town. You see, Jesus never talked about righteousness as stupid, incapable people walking around as idiotic sheep to be devoured by wolves. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves in that you are going to be good and people are going to devour you. Like, that is true. I expect you to be pure in heart like a dove, and I am sending you out among people who are going to try to eat you alive. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Meaning, you should be as foreseeing of wickedness 
as wickedness is scheming to take you down. It should never surprise you. And here's the thing. People talk about righteousness or like good people being predictable. And yeah, we're predictable. We keep our word in stuff, right? It's true. But we're not any more predictable than wickedness. There's nothing more predictable than wickedness and folly. Folly is the most predictable thing in the world. I can't tell you how many people have come into my office and be like, Nick, you, you, you won't believe what happened to me. And they'll like, tell me the first two sentences. I'm like, stop, let me tell you what happened to you. And I will tell them exactly what happens to them. And they're like, well, how did you, did you have to? and they're like, literally, they literally asked me if I have the gift of prophecy. Because only God could have revealed this, right? I'm like, oh, let me, let me finish the story. He took your money, and then he disappeared, and then he stole your identity. And they're like, oh, how, did, how did you know? Um, because I already know he's a scumbag, and scumbags are predictable. I mean, it's, it's, there, I cannot tell you how many Christians get hit by a train in their life. And they're like, why did God save me from the train? And I'm like, trains run on tracks! How do you not know a train is coming? Like, how many more like, don't play on the tracks, and like, don't nap between the metal bars, and like, how much of this is necessary for you to— when Proverbs says, wisdom will keep you safe, it's not saying if you're a good person, God won't let anything bad happen to you because you'll be convincing yourself you're a good person and you won't be one. And meanwhile, all kinds of self-destructive things will happen to you. You can't be under the Egyptian sheets and be like, why is this happening? The idea here is, is that when you say, God, I trust you, teach me what the world is really like. Teach me what my heart is really like. What is wisdom? What would it look like to discipline my heart in virtue on the basis of what you've taught, trusting who you are? And what kind of person do you want to make me? What happens is you begin to understand evil and folly in order to avoid it. You begin to understand truth and righteousness for what it is. You begin to see it as it lays out, and you see danger coming a mile away. And so you never date that guy or that girl, and you just don't take that job, and you never study that major to get that debt that doesn't get you employed anyway, and you do all—you just do things differently. You're just smarter. And so you don't end up walking down the street of the adulterous woman right when she's about to come out. Because you're, you're not out looking for something because you've actually already found something, and you already know what you're meant to pursue. You already know. And we already know we love this, irreligiously, because Batman is all of our favorites. Right? The great thing about Batman isn't just that he's good, and it isn't just that he's rich, and it isn't just that he has gadgets. People love Batman because he's always 10 steps ahead of the bad guy. He even has contingencies for when his own teammates get turned against him. He's already prepared for somebody to take control of Superman's mind. And, it, and like attack them. He's thought it all through. He knows all of the evil guys. He knows basically what they like to do. He already has their next thing cooked up before they even know it. He has contingencies about how to deal with his own friends when they go bad. Not only just to stop them, but to save them. And he's just 10 steps ahead. Because he's not under the delusion that he's some kind of superhero that can't die. His sense of his mortality— 
and his understanding and experience with human depravity has awoken him that you have to be wise. And that is really all Jesus is saying we're supposed to be. All of those things could be taking 2,000 years before there was ever a Batman right out of the first pages of Proverbs. That is the image of biblical righteousness. Not some pansy like, I've never been out of my tower. I'm going to hit you with a frying pan, little blondie. Not, uh, I'm the dorkiest person that's ever lived. Please love me. Not like, yeah, I'm a good person, but I can't actually do anything. And I'm so good that I don't know how to throw a punch. Like, I'm not talking— This is the biblical picture of righteousness and wisdom. Except better. And that is what you're being called to, not self-righteousness. And not weakness. And not prudery or a fear of taking any risks. No. We're being called to a life full of risks. Just different ones. Bigger ones. More terrifying ones. Which is why we train ourselves. So that when we enter those risks, we can execute the operation so we minimize the great risk and we work for success. And if we succeed, we don't succeed in sucking the blood out of somebody else. We succeed in producing more life and protecting rather than pillaging. And bringing more life rather than expanding by devouring someone else. The good news of the gospel is supposed to be joy to the world. All of it. Because that's the kind of people that we are. But that only happens. There's only one way that happens. To see wisdom for what it is. And to seek it. And to see folly for what it is. And to flee it. And it only works when your heart is captivated by the beauty of truth and wisdom and prudence and goodness and not looking two inches in front of your face at whatever's enticing you and seducing you. And it is not that Jesus doesn't want you to be happy or doesn't want you to, to experience the vigor of life. If you look at chapter 5, it actually compares the adulterous woman with the wife of your youth, right? So you've got two women. One is your wife, one is not. And it says, why be captivated by the adulterous woman? And then it uses, in reference to her and being captivated her, the word, the, the word that's translated bosom. That is, general mid-region. And then when it talks about the wife, it actually uses the literal sexual term for her upper organs. And it's actually, I think, literally intentional. Your visceral desires, all of your deep, passionate longings, they are meant to be fulfilled, give or take, in their proper place, in their proper ordering, in right relationship to everything else. So that in their gratification, there is a mutuality that produces life, quite literally in this case. An expansion of good for all, rather than a parasitic taking one from another. The, the question is just simply this. What are you going to be captivated by? And what captivates you? Do you want to be the person who sits and watches the sunrise and knows that it's going to rise and is willing to wait for it and is longing to see that first 
stripe of brilliant orange, and you have the composure and the conviction to wait on it and to believe in it? Or are you going to be the person who is just wandering the streets and looking to smell some kind of oil coming out a window? Because we will either be producers or pirates. We will either be oaks of righteousness or we will be jackals biting at the heels of all that's live around us. And this book, just the book of Proverbs, just its first nine chapters can set you free. Because it points to all of the things that point into the center of the heart of the gospel and points you forward to the one who said one greater than Solomon is here. Jesus who died and was raised for you so that you could always change paths. It doesn't matter how far down the road of folly or wickedness you are, you can change paths right now. There is one who has been punished for all your folly and all your wickedness on your behalf. And there is one who generously gives all wisdom to any who ask for it. So that in chapter 9, Lady Wisdom could stand up and say, all who are simple come to me. You can leave your simple ways and I will teach you wisdom. And that invitation has not changed. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would— we live in a world where um, things develop faster than we can reflect on their meaning. And in times of great technological and cultural change, there's often a great decline in wisdom. And we need wisdom, and our neighbors need us to be people of wisdom. And we, um, we ask you to give us wisdom, to show us its beauty, to help us believe that wisdom is supreme, that nothing in our desires can compare with her when we see her in her beauty, and that pursuing wisdom in faith is our life's great pursuit. And it starts with pursuing the one that is greater than Solomon, Jesus, and to committing our way to you and trusting you with all of our heart and trusting that you will make our paths straight. And we pray that you would help us to flee folly and to pursue your wisdom. Help us to read this book and to meditate on it well and for it to change us over these next six weeks. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.